Well, for this evening, let's turn to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. And this is a passage that I have preached many times before. I'm not preaching it much differently than I have in the past. Many things about this passage we simply won't touch on. There's just too much for this one sermon. But we will be looking at the first ten verses, certain themes within these first ten verses. Let's pray together. Our Father, may we be humbled in the dust and be lifted up in your grace. May we understand the depth of our sin and need. May we see what you have done to meet that need. We ask, Father, that our Sunday evening services will increase with your people coming with a hunger for the Word of God. And the gospel is preached in every service that lost folk might also come and that they would be convicted of sin and drawn to the Savior. As your people worship your name, even as we do now, as we listen to Christ himself speak to us from the page of Scripture, as the Holy Spirit applies the word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is one of the classic passages in the Word of God that helps us to understand what grace is all about. It's a passage that tells us that we need saving, and a passage that tells us that we who believe in Christ are saved by grace alone. We begin by seeing our condition outside of Christ. And our condition outside of Christ is summarized under the term spiritual death. We read in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Because of our fall in Adam, we are dead in sin. There is original sin, that is the corruption of our entire nature because of our fall in our first father, Adam. We are spiritually dead. We are not almost dead. We are not simply sick. We are not simply weak. The text tells us, spiritually speaking, we are dead. We greedily sin, yet we are dead to spiritual things, dead to God's goodness, dead to the gospel. What does this mean? To be spiritually dead, first of all, means that we are insensible 
That is to say, we have no sense to comprehend spiritual things, whether it be the thunders of Sinai or the sweet call of the gospel. By nature, we are insensible to these things. To the world, we are attracted, but we see no beauty in Christ, who is altogether lovely. Damnation may scare us, but sin does not. Hell may frighten us, but not offending God. By nature, we do not moan under a sense of sin. We do not see our need of grace. We are insensible to spiritual things. But also to be spiritually dead means that we have an understanding that is dead. That is to say, there is no spiritual apprehension of the things of God. So again, that passage in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now again, this doesn't mean that a person outside of Christ can't describe theology to you, or tell you what a Bible verse may mean, or repeat to you the catechism that he might have memorized as a child. What it does mean is that, spiritually speaking, these things are not understood. Spiritually, they are not apprehended because the soul outside of Christ is spiritually dead. But it also means that the will of man is spiritually dead. That is to say, dead to Christ. When we say that the will is bound, we do not mean that men and women and children by nature can't make choices. We mean that the choices that men and women and children make outside of Christ will always be contrary to the gospel. So it is when you place before men life and death, they will choose death every time, unless by the regenerative work of the Spirit of God, the will is changed. And so we read in John 6, 65, No man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. And in John chapter 5, verse 40, And you will not come to me that you might have life. The will is spiritually dead. Some of you really need to go online sometime, and you need to find Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermon, Free Will, a Slave. You need to read that sermon and understand this point very, very deeply. But also, spiritual death means that, spiritually speaking, we are powerless. Uh, There is no heat that can awaken a dead man, no coal that can awaken him. The dead man is lifeless, he is powerless, utterly incapable of recovering himself, and so we are spiritually impotent. We have no strength, we have no power. God comes to us when we are without strength and when we have no power, though we are still responsible, which is a point that I think confuses people that needs to be explained with some frequency. Every man who has departed from God is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed, even though he is incapable of doing so. Responsibility and ability are different things entirely. Everyone is responsible to return to God. Everyone is responsible to respond to the gospel call. But because we are spiritually dead, we lack the ability to return. Insensible, the understanding is dead, the will is dead, powerless, This is what it means that we are spiritually dead. Sinners may tremble at physical death, but the death that is described in the Bible that is spiritual is little considered. A death that brings everlasting misery is this death. Christ is supremely lovely and worthy of our affection, and yet we are senseless. 
And the case for the total depravity of man is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and all men not loving him. We are senseless. If one were to die here now, what terror could rule in the heart? But we are by nature, apart from Christ, spiritually dead. But also, this spiritual death shows itself in being conformed to the vile practices of this present world. Look again at verses 2 and 3. He says in verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. These are dead men walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so just as a corpse decays and gives off its putrid odor, so does the unregenerate life before God. Sin is our rottenness. It is ghastly. It is odious. It is abominable corruption. Now, outside of Christ, men and women and children are ungrateful. We trifle with sin. We're invited to the wedding feast and yet we make light of it. We are proud and we are arrogant by nature, while in reality we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We tell ourselves to take our ease, thinking that we are rich and satisfied with goods. We are ungrateful, we are proud, but also we are self-deceived. We think that all is well with the soul, that all is right with us, but nothing is right with us outside of Christ. Our hearts are against God, not for Him. And we have provoked him, alienated in mind and in actions. Perhaps it's true that even in a Sunday evening such as this, there is someone who is slipping into vile practices. Well, you're enslaved, you see, and that's what the text tells us as well. Look at verse 2. He says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We, by nature, are enslaved to Satan, to the evil one. We are careless about matters of infinite importance. And so it's, it's like the, the evil one puts thumb screws on us and we begin to feel some of, its, some of its power, and yet we think because we can unscrew it and set it aside that we're free. But no, that's part of his ploy as well. He wants you to think you're free. All the while, the thumb screws are placed upon your thumbs at will if you are outside of Christ. And so we are enslaved to Satan, but also by nature we are enslaved to sin. So we read in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It takes many forms, mental, Emotional, physical, immorality, sins of self-righteousness, and what the old theologians used to call splendid sins. You know what splendid sins are. That's the sinner who thinks that he is doing really well and he's accepted by God because he's doing things that he considers to be good. He's giving money to the poor, he's caring about people, he's, he's a, a philanthropist. These are splendid sins. But splendid sins are sins all the same. They are not good in the sight of God. Now, John Flavel, the Puritan, pulls no punches. He puts it this way. 
all the delights in the sensible life, all the pleasures that ever your lust gave you, are but putrid, stinking waters of a corrupt pond where toads lie croaking and spawning compared to the crystal stream of the most pure and pleasant fountain. Tell us what you really think, John Flavel. But you see, that's a good summary, actually, of what the text is teaching us and telling us. We are so enslaved that we would rather be condemned than part with our slavery. We love our sin so that we would rather keep our sin than part with it. It's like the the drunk who knows it's killing him and yet he wants the bottle. The addict who knows that it's destroying him and yet he wants to keep his drugs. Well, that's what sin is like. We are slaves. We have no ability, no will, no desire to come to Christ, to the Christ of the Bible. So when you hear this thing about freedom of the will, the Bible just doesn't teach it. And that's not historic Christianity. That's something that's been made up by false teaching. The Bible does not teach that. It teaches that the will of man fallen in Adam is bound in sin. And if we don't get that, we really miss the whole point about what sin does and our condition outside of Christ. We are totally incapable of any movement toward God whatsoever on our own. And not only that, But the text also tells us, as it describes our condition outside of Christ, that outside of Christ we are under the wrath of God. Imagine that. Again, verse 3 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were children of wrath like the rest. You know that to be the case, people of God. You know that once you were under the wrath of God, and there must be a transition from wrath to grace. And that transition comes through the work of the Spirit of God who applies the gospel to the heart. And so Scripture never flatters unrenewed human nature. God is angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. And this is to believe thoroughly in the fall of man. Oh, how few preachers really believe in the fall of man. How few preachers really believe in original sin. How few Christians really believe fully in the fall of man and in the corruption of our nature by sin. How few really believe that we are ruined entirely by the fall. And so what we tend to think is, yeah, we're fallen, but in our will, for example, we're still pretty good. That's not what the Bible says. We are entirely ruined by the fall. Now, this is the Bible's autopsy. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it, that we are by nature again, outside of Christ, we are so blinded, we are so enslaved, that faced with abortion and corrupt politics and the horror of war, that Americans, you just listen to the polls, Americans still believe in man's essential goodness. Just ask many a professing Christian, is man basically good or basically bad? Well, the answer that you will often receive is man is essentially good. That's not true. Now, in our unfallen condition in Adam before he fell, in his pristine state, he was righteous. But after the fall, Adam and all of his posterity has been plunged into moral corruption. Now that's what Paul describes here, our state, our condition outside of Christ. He's very plain about it here and in many other places. You know, I sometimes wonder if Paul the Apostle could come back. I mean be raised from the dead just temporarily and come back and maybe stand in some of our pulpits and preach 
kind of incognito, you didn't know it was Paul. And then he would read a passage like this, or maybe Romans 9 or Ephesians 1, and he would preach the the themes that were so often upon his lips, the sovereignty of God, the ruin of man, our need of grace, the predestination and election of, of grace, and all of these wonderful things about the return of Christ and the judgment to come. I think that many a person in congregations around our country would walk out on Paul the Apostle. I think so. But this is what the Bible teaches about us. Now... Point two, all of that was point one. Point, point two, God has intervened. <laughs> God has intervened. And so we have that, that little connective word, but, in verse four. But God, you see it? But God. Everything turns upon that, 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 little, that little word. We were dead, but God. We were conformed to this world, but God. We were enslaved to Satan, but God. We were enslaved to sin, but God. We were under God's wrath, but God. And so Paul's purpose in describing to us what we once were like outside of Christ is to magnify the grace of God that has saved us in Christ. So that when you walk out of here tonight, yes, you are fully aware of your condition outside of Christ, but at the same time, you are aware that God's grace is greater than your sin. That it's good news that Paul the Apostle brings against the backdrop of the depravity of human nature. And so he says God has intervened. Man's depravity, thank God, man's depravity is no obstacle to the grace of God. And he gives us two characteristics of this almighty intervention into our lives. The first is the characteristic of mercy. We see it in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Mercy extended toward the criminal. He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. Isn't it mercy that in eternity past there was this covenant of grace in which he determined that he would save his people? Isn't it mercy that Christ came and atoned for our sins when we were helpless and hopeless and undone and powerless? Is it not mercy that he sends the Spirit of God to regenerate our souls, to pardon us, to give to us the gospel and and to accept us through the righteousness of Christ and to give to us eternal salvation? That's mercy. When I consider who I was outside of Christ and what I truly deserved, it's mercy, mercy. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It is mercy extended toward me in my criminality against God. It is, it is inexhaustible, perpetual mercy that has been shown to you, people of God. Now listen to this. This is from Ralph Erskine. If you know anything about Scottish church history, the Erskines were great preachers in the 18th century. This is so beautiful. He says, So it is here in spiritual music, whether you look to the consummate song of the redeemed above or the initial song of the redeemed below, The song of mercy present and judgment past makes the sweetest melody in heaven, and the song of mercy and judgment both present makes the sweetest melody that can be attained on earth. Mercy and judgment, like bass and treble, make holy melody in the spiritual song. Here are the different notes of music. Mercy makes a high and lofty note, and judgment makes an humble and low note, and both make the song melodious. When a man not only sees mercy, but mercy and judgment 
mercy before judgment and mercy after judgment and mercy in judgment and mercy with judgment and mercy out of judgment and mercy backing judgment and mercy blessing judgment and mercy ordering and disposing judgment, mercy qualifying judgment and mercy moderating judgment and mercy sweetening judgment and mercy rejoicing over judgment and mercy running through judgment and mercy at the root of judgment and mercy at the top of judgment, mercy on this side of judgment and mercy on that side of judgment mercy around the judgment and mercy turning judgment into mercy. Oh then, how does he sing with melody in his heart to the Lord? It is to make the song melodious. You see, mercy, mercy everywhere, even in judgment, because there's mercy in the judgment of the cross of Jesus Christ when he bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners like you and me. Why isn't this place filled with folks hearing the gospel tonight? Isn't this good news, or is it? Why aren't we bringing unbelievers, or at least inviting them to come? You know, I was sitting in the dentist chair the other day, the dentist who's never done work on me before, trying to invite her to come to worship. <laughs> She's not here, but let's keep trying. They need to hear. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, there's mercy. Mercy that triumphs over judgment. Mercy. That's the first characteristic. But then... There also is love, people of God, love, eternal, everlasting love. So we read in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, He loved me when I was dead in transgressions and sins. Thank God His love did not depend on what I am. It did not depend upon my faithfulness. It didn't depend upon my goodness. I had none. He loved me while I was a sinner, not because of anything good in me. Free, free mercy arises from Himself. His sovereign love comes to those who are unworthy of it. Now, what does this mean but electing grace? It means what we read in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to be adopted as His children in Christ Jesus. You should delight in this truth of election because it is the manifestation of God's love. Without it we would be lost. The dead will not live without the exertion of God's sovereign power. If I'm dead in trespasses and sin, where does faith come from? It comes from God's intervention, and that's traceable to God's eternal good pleasure and electing grace. And for all those who have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, which, of course, you know is a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth, they will all come to faith in Jesus Christ. He will bring the gospel to those that he has chosen to be his own. My favorite illustration of that is to read the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon and uh, the guy that's there in Australia tending his sheep and uh, knows nothing about the gospel. And all of a sudden, across the prairie, comes this paper that's blowing across. He picks it up and he reads it, and it's a sermon of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he's converted God will bring the gospel to his own. He will see that they are granted saving faith. Now, all of this means grace, grace, grace. You see how he puts it in verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, that is that, that faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's all of grace from first to last. The source of grace is God's own will and love. 
The origin of grace is is in eternity past. The movement of grace is toward chosen sinners through the cross and the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. The promise of grace is security forever. The channel of grace is faith, which itself is God's gift, enabling us to personally receive Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. That's grace. Grace, undeserved merit to the ill-deserving, the free favor of God, no works of any kind. As I said in that hymn, hymn this morning that I quoted, but let our debts be what they may, however great or small, as soon as we have naught to pay, our Lord forgives us all. We have nothing. It's all of grace from first to last. But now let's see thirdly, the results of God's intervention. What are the results of this intervening grace? Well, let's look briefly. The first result is that the dead sinner who was dead now lives. Verses 5 and 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, life comes to God's people. We see our sin. We see our lostness. We see the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ and his atonement. We see that he is a wondrous, wondrous Savior. And do you know what power is required in order that that take place in a sinner's life? Well, look back in the first chapter at verses 19 and 20, in which we are told, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? What is required that you and I might be regenerated, come to life, is that the same power that was exerted in raising Christ from the dead now must be exerted in order that those who are spiritually lifeless come to life and trust in Christ. It's, it's Jesus standing at Lazarus' tomb saying to him, Come forth. That's what he does for the sinner. It's Ezekiel, Can these dry bones live? O Lord, you alone know. And then the Lord sends his spirit and he breathes life into these dead bones and brings them together and gives meat upon the bones. It is God alone who can do this. We sing it frequently, do we not? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. What does that mean? A life-giving ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, another result of life, grace, mercy, is a fruitful walk. That is to say, when true life comes to the sinner, things are different. We walk differently. Our conversation is different. We live differently. So we read in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now compare that with verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air. So we once walked according to the course of death. Now, according to verse 10, we walk according to this new life that we have in Christ. Our walk is altered. We have a new heart, a new walk, new motives, because there is a new birth and a resurrection from the dead. Grace 
changes people. Grace doesn't leave us where we were. Grace transforms us. Grace changes us. And so we need to keep that in mind. Now, I remember preaching this text once and saying something like this to you. Back in my hometown of Macon, Georgia, my people are buried in Riverside Cemetery. And uh, my father and mother have a plot in Riverside Cemetery. Um, Probably, when my bones are laid in the ground, it will be at Riverside Cemetery. I don't know that, but it's very probable. Up there with my people on the hill. Now, suppose just for a moment that I was buried in Riverside Cemetery and then the Lord brought me back from the dead. Now, he won't do that until the resurrection, but just suppose for the sake of argument. Well, you know, if God raised me from the dead, having been buried in Riverside Cemetery, I certainly wouldn't go back to the grave and sleep at night. Would you? But when we return to our old ways, when we return to sin and return to the pattern of those things that are are more of the spirit of the power of the air, the evil one and Satan, rather than to this beautiful walk described in verse 10, it's as if we're saying, yes, God, you raised me from the dead, but I really want to live back in the grave. So we're so very inconsistent with ourselves. And a lot of what happens in the Christian life is that the Lord is continually working in our lives to make us walk consistently with this new life that we have in Christ. He will do that in your life. He will not let any of his people continue indefinitely in a course of disobedience. Not only that, another result of this free grace and mercy is that the one who knows the Lord by grace knows him forever. Uh, not, Not in passing, not temporarily, not for a while, but knows him forever. So we read in verse 7, So that in the coming ages, you see how long it lasts? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is God doing? He's saving his people for time and for eternity. And he's going to take you on that great day and you will be a trophy of grace. And he will say, all right, universe, you look at that David McWilliams, you see what a rotten sinner he was. You see how ugly his heart was. You see how depraved he was, how fallen, how he hated me. I saved him, and I saved him, and I transformed his life. And here, through all the ages that are to come, the coming ages, God is showing the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward David in Christ Jesus. And that's true of you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the riches of God's grace, abundant, valuable, immense, inexhaustible, and free, if this new life were produced naturally, it could be dissolved naturally. But it is not. It comes to us supernaturally. He elects, he sends his son, he calls us by his spirit. Why? To desert you to yourself? No. So that he will keep you forever and ever and ever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let's bring it to a conclusion. I think I could go all night on this thing, but let's bring it to a conclusion. People of God, you're spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit has made you alive. Remember the pit from which you were taken. Let it produce in you humility and praise to God. A rebellious, lost, ungrateful, undone creature has now been saved by the grace of God. And so boast in Christ. 
As we read in Galatians 6.14, boast in the cross, boast in Christ, and tell others about what Jesus has done and that he is a savior of sinners. But even in a Sunday evening service, as the covenant people of God have come to worship his name, there may be someone here who is lost and undone. You really don't know the Savior. I wish there were a thousand here tonight to hear the word who were undone. Again, not because we're counting numbers, but because we love souls. The God who is rich in mercy seeks men out. Did you know that? He's called by some the hound of heaven. The preacher is called to show our utter helplessness so that you look to Christ. It's the Spirit's work to convict and to convert, and he may even be at work at this moment. Perhaps even now, you can sense within your soul, I begin to see, I begin to understand and to feel it in my heart. Even now, I'm being raised from the dead. And all who come to Christ, though he be bad as the devil, will be saved. It doesn't matter what your sins have been. He can pardon, he can forgive, he can cleanse, because he is a God of sovereign, free grace. And when the irresistible grace entered my heart when I was a boy, my dead heart, my, 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 my heart, my heart, my heart, what wickedness, wickedness, wickedness was shown to me when God saved me from my sin. When irresistible grace entered my heart, my dead heart, it was like a hand squeezing the death out of me. And that's what God does. None will come unless the Spirit draw, but when He does, it is vain to resist. He will save His own. And all glory goes to Him. It's all of grace. People of God, it's all of grace. From first to last. It is all of grace. From first to last. Amen.